This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Thursday, October 19th. On the pod today, thousands of people have been killed in Gaza in 12 days. Hundreds of trucks carrying desperately needed aid still sit at Gaza's border with Egypt waiting for entry. And Israel's defense minister tells his troops, be ready to invade Gaza. We'll speak to journalist Graham Wood about what this means for the 203 hostages in Gaza and get the latest from our CBC team on the ground. Plus, a major development today in Canada's deteriorating relationship with India. We speak to the CBC reporter who broke that story for the latest details on this diplomatic dispute. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is warning of a long war, and his troops are being told to prepare for the next phase of it. The CBC's Susan Ormiston joins us now from Jerusalem. So, Susan, there was more fire exchanged by both Israel and Hamas today. What's the latest on the ground there? So here's what we know tonight uh, from Israel. Those Israeli troops massing near the border with Gaza in southern Israel are getting ready. We don't know when an incursion into Gaza may begin, but we're getting some signaling. The Israeli defense minister said today when he was talking to some of those troops near the border, and I'll just quote from him, you see Gaza now from a distance, you will soon see it from inside, the command will come. So a pretty direct message to the troops anyway that this was still the strategy of the Israeli government and it is coming. Another briefing, another minister apparently said that the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces had been given a green light. They'd received the green light to go into Gaza. Again, it doesn't mean imminently, but it does mean close. So, yes, we spent a lot of time in the southern part of Israel this afternoon. We heard those thuds of air attacks going into Gaza still pretty continuously. We also heard the crackle of an interception of a rocket coming the other way from Hamas. So this is still going on. What we do know, though, is there's some markers and one of them is coming tomorrow. It's expected that Rafa opening the crossing between southern Gaza and Egypt will open up for a short time and to allow about 20 trucks of aid to proceed into Gaza. Significant because there hasn't been any outside aid since this war began. And as we all have been seeing, it's getting very, very desperate, catastrophic really in Gaza. Water is a huge issue. Apparently, the health ministry is begging Gazans if they have even a liter of fuel to give it to the hospital in order to help run those generators. So that aid, we hope, everybody hopes, will be going into Gaza tomorrow. But just as a context, David, usually the U.N. takes in about 100 truckloads a day of supplies to Gaza in a more peaceful time. So 20 trucks for all that need is a pretty small amount. It's seen as an experiment. It may increase. But again, that is expected to happen tomorrow. We're also not seeing any evidence of a big high-profile political visitor coming to uh, Tel Aviv tomorrow. We saw all through the week high-profile visits to the region. Okay, uh, so that's the situation in in terms of of Gaza itself. Uh, The Israeli Defense Forces, though, also provided an update today on the hostages taken in the Hamas attack on October 7th. What are we hearing about that? 
Well, they've been connecting, I'm afraid to say, bodies with names and people and the missing. And they've just raised the tally, they believe, of hostages to 203. So that's climbed up about four names since uh, the uh, initial stages. That's a lot of hostages believed still to be in Gaza. And as I said, conditions are worsening there. And that may include a Canadian woman who was living on a kibbutz in southern Israel. Her name is Judy Weinstein and her husband. They were trapped by militants out in the fields the morning of October 2nd on their morning walk. It's believed they were shot and their daughter spoke to CBC News and suggests that she believes her mother has been kidnapped and her father was badly injured and she doesn't know what's happened to him. So we're getting a little more detail of some of the Canadian connections to those hostages. But, David, we've heard so little about their condition, about where they are, whether they're separate, how they're doing. Of course, this is strategic and deliberate because any information that leaks out could be detrimental to their fate. But that's one of the things that the Israelis will really have to be concerned about when when they go into Gaza is how to extract those hostages and prevent them from be, becoming pawns and human shields for Hamas. Susan, thank you very much. That's the CBC, Susan Ormiston in Jerusalem. Well, as Susan just mentioned, Israel now says more than 200 hostages were taken by Hamas and are currently believed to be inside Gaza. We are just waiting to hear more from the hostages. We are looking for the immediate and unconditional release of all hostages. Among those taken are children, festival goers, elderly people and soldiers. Some of their loved ones spoke out earlier today. Bring our children home now. We're waiting for them. We're crying for them. Every, every night we're crying and pray for them. They need to get out of there now. Don't negotiate anything. They just need to release them. On Monday, we received a photo of Yarden, their father, uh, being driven into the Gaza Strip on a motorcycle. He's severely injured in his head. We know nothing. We have no photos of my aunt and uncle. We only received a confirmation that they're not among the dead and they're probably there. These hostages are seen as the human shields of this war. And as we close off day 13 with an invasion imminent, an Israeli minister says troops will soon see Gaza from inside. The Atlantic magazine obtained a copy of Hamas's hostage-taking manual that the Israel Defense Forces says was recovered in the aftermath of the October 7th attack. For more on this, I'm joined by The Atlantic's Graham Wood from Jerusalem. Graham, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. This handbook you've obtained, I know you won't tell us your sources, but help, tell, help us uh, understand how you obtained it and, and verify its authenticity. Yeah, so this handbook, little bits of it have been circulating online. And uh, the Israel Defense Force, the, the Israeli military, uh, was able to authenticate part of it for me. Um, they we're not eager to have all of it shared, but I was able to um, ascertain from them that it was indeed picked up from uh, some remnant of a Hamas force that came into Israel on October 7. Uh, and um, yes, they say it's real. Uh, reading your article, there are some um, there are some passages in your piece that really jump out where the instructions in the handbook 
tell the, the, the hostage takers and the attackers to kill hostages expected to resist, and the others are to be bound and blindfolded and to use them as human shields. Uh, that's very stark when you see it written down, e even after knowing what happened on the 7th of October. Yeah, so much of what happened on the 7th of October was just really surprising. Uh, and it looked really haphazard, too. But what we see from this manual is that a lot of it was actually carefully thought out. And many of the things that are, are most brutal about the treatment that Hamas has for hostages uh, were planned well in advance and were not left to chance. Um, that said, there are some aspects of this manual that don't seem to have applied. Um, they seem to have been expecting to dig in in Israeli territory keep hostages and um, possibly, you know, die in a hail of bullets, possibly kill the hostages, probably possibly uh, extract concessions. And what they, in fact, did was take about 200 Israelis into Gaza, which is different from what the manual suggested. Right. It's almost like the plan was effective in terms of their capacity to commit enormous atrocity, but then something changed uh, along the way. Are there any conclusions we can draw from that, that instead of it becoming a, a standoff hostage situation, it became a kidnapping hostage situation? I think the main conclusion that we can draw, first of all, is that the brutality that we could see on the 7th of October uh, was, uh, was, was not something that was just a matter of chance. It was not people getting um, beyond their writ. It was what they were expected to do. Um, this manual is a manual for, for brutality. It's, it's a manual without humanity. The other thing, though, that we can learn from this is that what happened on the 7th of October seems to have been more than Hamas expected to be able to do. They thought that they were going to have to dig in and face um, a military onslaught in different parts of Israeli territory. Uh, what in fact they found was almost no military resistance and the ability to commit a bloodbath with almost complete impunity. Um, so what they were expecting to be difficult turned out to be easy and they were able to bring back, as they say, hundreds of, of hostages who were in Gaza at this very moment, which I don't think Hamas planned for at all. The, the numbers have been updated in, in the past little while by Israel. They now put it at, at I believe, 203 hostages uh, that have been taken. Uh, what does this manual, this, this handbook, uh, tell us about what might be in store for the 203 people that Hamas has right now? Well, uh, it, it, it tells us, first of all, that, that um, there is uh, very little scruple that Hamas has about uh, killing hostages. Uh, it suggests that the hostages be tortured. Um, compliance should be uh, exacted in pretty much whatever way is necessary. Um, what it doesn't really say, though, is what is exact what is ex expected to be gotten in return for hostages. Mm. Um, you know, the um, Hamas was able to get for one single Israeli hostage a IDF soldier named Gilad Shalit. Uh, about a thousand Palestinian prisoners released before. Um, it, who knows what they can get for 203 hostages, which they currently have in their custody. What we know is that they were expecting uh, before to have probably much smaller groups of hostages in their custody and to try to negotiate those, uh, to, to, to swap uh, those, those people for some kind of concession. And they were prepared to kill them if there was an assault, uh, if there was any attempt to take them back by force. 
Right, and this spelled out in your article is the instruction to use them as human shields, to use electric shocks to force compliance, and bluntly to, to kill the difficult ones. Um, we don't know how many of these 203 people are still alive, but we do know at, at, at the handbook and past practice by Hamas is these people should be used as human shields. All of this while the Israeli defense minister is telling his troops, uh, you're going to see the inside of Gaza soon. So, so how does all of this affect how the IDF may approach this, how the military may proceed when it comes to getting into Gaza? The IDF, Israel as a whole, they had a calculation in mind before because they've been through this with some of their citizens being kidnapped and negotiations being worked out. Uh, what I don't think that Israel or Hamas ever contemplated was hundreds, hundreds of people, including civilians, including babies, including elderly uh, men and women, as being part of that calculation. Um, so I, the country of Israel is just staggering with trauma and with confusion about what to do next. There is, I think, a political certainty um, and a military consensus that uh, Israelis believe that, that Hamas has to be eradicated and that has to mean boots on the ground. But there's all these moral calculations that were that were uh, thought over, it was wrenching calculations over, again, one person just a few years ago. And so I don't think it's possible for a society to come to conclusions about 203 people this quickly. It's a very, very difficult moment, and I'm not sure how it's going to be resolved. Yeah, as you say, some of these hostages are, are very old women and, and very young um, uh, children. And it is a grim calculus and, and a grim situation. I mean, how hopeful is anyone in Israel right now of a positive outcome here, um, given the likelihood of what, what will happen once this invasion starts at some point in the days ahead? I think all of the outcomes that are being contemplated are basically negative. I mean, even the people who are most enthusiastic about an invasion, uh, who think that it's absolutely necessary, will tell you that this could mean the lives of thousands of IDF soldiers, untold numbers of uh, citizens of, of Palestinians, uh, residents of Gaza. Um, human life is, is going to be spent very, very quickly when an invasion happens. And uh, Israel realizes that's going to be painful for all. Um, what I think that they, again, have reached a consensus about is that that pain is necessary because the conditions that allowed for the, the operations by Hamas of 7th of October simply can't be allowed to continue. Graham Wood, staff writer at The Atlantic, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, David. A major development today in Canada's deteriorating relationship with India. As CBC News first reported, a large number of Canadian diplomats have left India over the last couple of days. India has formally conveyed its plan to unilaterally remove diplomatic immunities for all but 21 Canadian diplomats and dependents in Delhi by tomorrow, October 20th. Given the implications of India's actions on the safety of our diplomats, we have facilitated their safe departure from India. All of this comes after that stunning moment last month when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau accused India's government of involvement in the murder of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Niger. The CBC's Evan Dyer joins me now. He's been on this. So, Evan, you broke the story today. Uh, bring us up to date on exactly what has happened in this flurry of moves in the last little while. 
So about two weeks ago, India told Canada formally that it wanted parity in the number of diplomats, parity based on India's numbers, which said that there were only 21 Indian diplomats in Canada. Canada has about three times that number in India, so they were demanding a big reduction. We then saw two weeks of negotiations, uh, a deadline that India had imposed sort of passed by somewhere in the middle there, but uh, finally they hit the end of the road of those talks yesterday, and uh, 41 Canadian diplomats and a slightly larger number of dependents all had to leave under the imminent threat of losing diplomatic immunity, which would have meant mm. that they could have been arrested, they could have been prosecuted, they could have been imprisoned. And given the tensions between the two governments, that's a risk that Canada can't take. Uh, Canada considers that a violation of the Vienna Convention. Of course, countries can choose how many diplomats to allow in their own country from any other country, and they can remove them at any time, but there's a process to follow. And it, it, it seems that Canada is saying here, India didn't follow that process, uh, but rather simply gave this ultimatum that it would unilaterally strip diplomatic immunity, and that forced Canada's hand and, and had to conduct this pretty rapid evacuation. Okay, so about two-thirds, essentially, of, of the diplomatic component there have, have, have had to leave because of this threat, which will undoubtedly have an effect on operations and capacity. We heard uh, from Minister of Foreign Affairs Melanie Jolie by, uh, from Minister of Immigration Mark Miller. What does it say about how Canada is going to respond to this? Well, Canada's response is going to be pretty muted from what we've heard so far, and there's an official explanation for that, and then there's probably an unofficial one, too. Uh, I should actually say that the damage is even more severe than that, actually, because Canada already was pulling out consular officials who have a lower level of diplomatic immunity than this, right. even prior to this. So that, there's about another three dozen people that already had to leave as well. Uh, so Canada's saying that it won't retaliate because this is an action outside of the Vienna Convention, because it imperils the whole system worldwide of protection for diplomats. They don't want to play that game. They don't want to get down on that level with India. That's the official explanation. But of course, Canada could remove people if it wanted to by following the steps under the Vienna Convention. You simply declare somebody persona non grata, you give them uh, X amount of hours or days to leave the country, and you can achieve exactly the same end. Canada isn't doing that, and I think that we have to look at the fact that any further escalation would probably cost Canada more than it would cost India, Right. because the next thing the Indians might very well go for would be some kind of a ban on international students coming here, or some new travel advisory that might raise insurance costs for people coming here and therefore reduce the numbers, and that injects billions of dollars into Canada's economy. So I think that that's also part of the explanation. Okay, Evan, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Evan Dyer. All right, for more on this story, I'm joined now by Dennis Horak. He previously served as Canada's ambassador to Saudi Arabia and as head of Canada's mission to Iran. Uh, Dennis, uh, you have some unique experience with this sort of thing. You were declared persona non grata by both countries, but never had your diplomatic status uh, revoked, as we're seeing India threatening to do here. So what's your reaction uh, to what's happened? Well, I, I, I watched the press conference, and it, it was a bit confusing, and I think Evan summed it up uh, quite well. Um, I think it's a little bit of legal hair-splitting, whether you're declared persona non grata or whether you, you have the threat of your immunities being lifted. It amounts to the same thing. Basically, you're being expelled. Now, there's different processes, as, as, as Evan said, but it's, again, like I said, I think it's splitting hairs. It, it amounts to the same thing. You're out. So, so what do you think of how Canada is, is this muted response, as Evan described it? Normally, we see this tit-for-tat on expulsions, right? The UPNG someone, we PNG someone, you know, to use the shorthand for persona non grata. But this sort of a move, I, Canada's not going to strip diplomatic immunity, I can't imagine. What do you make of the response? Well, it, it makes some sense. I think that's probably why the emphasis was put on the unprecedented nature of this and that this was a violation of the Vienna Conventions and all of that, and that Canada didn't want to imperil the entire diplomatic system and, and by, by retaliating and making this a, 
a precedent for other countries to follow because I don't think Canada wants to do that. I don't think Canada wants to imperil uh, India's ability for the High Commission here to, to operate. There's, there are, there are, are hundreds of thousands of, of Canadians of Indian descent, of visitors, workers, students, and I don't think we want to do anything to, to discourage the number of students, for example, or workers that come here. If India wasn't able to to service them with consular services or, or other kinds of services, that could put a, a roadblock in the way of Indians coming to Canada. And, and I don't think we certainly want that. That may, in fact, be what, what India's goal was, was for us to retaliate, for us to uh, to uh, have it. And, and the reduction of, of diplomats there, a number of whom will be visa officers, as, as we heard, and, and which is natural. Uh, and it will slow down the visa processing system. And that could reduce the number of Indians coming to study here and to, to work here. And, and, you know, they read into papers as well as we do and see the, the amount of money that these students bring into Canadian universities and the kind of dependence that a lot of Canadian universities have on these foreign students. And this may be a way of punishing Canada for that. You, you mentioned what the, the Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie, said, that this was an unprecedented in violation of international law outside the Vienna Convention on Diplomats. Is there any recourse for something like this other than strict retaliation? Um, you, you know, is there some is there somewhere you can complain other than to Prime Minister Modi's office? Yeah, I'm not an international lawyer. I don't know, and it would be pointless in any case. Uh, this this was an expulsion by any other name, and they wanted to pursue it this way for whatever reasons. They told us, what, I think two weeks ago, that there were more than that that they they wanted to reduce the numbers. And as Evan mentioned, countries can limit the number of accreditations they afford to, to foreign diplomats. Why they chose this process as opposed to just straight up uh, PNG, I don't know. Um, but it did give Canada this opportunity to say, well, we're not going to follow because we're not going to break international law. And that, you know, that gives them an out. And I think that's where the government emphasized that legal aspect as opposed to the reality of they're being expelled in, in one way, shape, or form in any case. Right. I, I guess the argument coming from India is that they wanted to uh, parity between the, the two diplomatic staffs in the two different countries. So I guess that's why they did this rather than PNG to provoke a reaction. Maybe that's why they chose this route. And, and as you say, is this the off-ramp for Canada? Because knowing Canada won't respond in kind, does that maybe, is, could this be the end uh, of this diplomatic battle? It could be. I, I don't see Canada retaliating because, as I, as I mentioned, that it, it's we have a lot to lose if India is, can, cannot service the populations they have here. And then that would create fear amongst Indian students who want to come to Canada that, you know, perhaps they're not welcome or that they can't get the services they need. So it's not in our interest to do it. So I don't know whether it will be further communications on this, uh, further communications. It's not clear to me what India wants. Uh, what's their objective in terms of trying to resolve this? Uh, do they want Canada to turn around and say, well, you know, I'm sorry, we made a mistake, but well, that's not going to happen. So I'm not sure what the off-ramp, uh, off-ramp is uh, specifically, but in terms of the off-ramp on this particular incident, the focus on, uh, not the incident, but in terms of the, the, the removals, mm-hmm. the, I think the focus on the legality, these li- this legal hair splitting, as I said, I think is the off-ramp that Canada's chosen. It, it, you know, it, it reads like talking points, and I think the department has figured that out pretty well. So as we said in your intro, uh, Dennis, you, you've served in some um, controversial places, right? Iran and Saudi Arabia <laughs> as a career diplomat. And I wonder if we can just pull back and look at the bigger moment here. I mean, obviously, tensions with India, not a good situation uh, for Canada in this, the geopolitical context. There's still the war in Ukraine happening, and now this war in Israel, with Israel declaring war on Hamas. Do you remember a time with 
so much tension and, and, and potential for things to really go bad uh, in re- recent times. Yeah, I, I do. When I was in Iran, things were very, very tense. Uh, very tense. And certainly our relationship with Iran mm-hmm. was, was virtually non-existent. But in those days, prior to the, the, the negotiation of the first uh, nuclear agreement with Iran, there was a lot of tension, a lot of concern. Certainly, it was felt in Iran that, that an attack against Iran was somehow imminent. Uh, you had the, the Arab Spring bubbling up. Uh, so there was a lot of instability, uncertainty, and certainly in Iran, the sense of, of, of pending doom was, was, uh, was imminent or, or was, 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 was certainly palpable. But, but as you mentioned, you know, we've got a Ukraine as well. It's much more global. We're in a situation where we're getting shifts in, in, in the global dynamics. China, resurgent China, you've got Russia all over the place. Now the Middle East is sort of blowing up, as it does on a regular basis. But obviously this is much more severe. So, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult time. But it's, uh, we've been through this before. Yeah, and it feels like we'll be going through this one for a while. Uh, Dennis uh, Horak. Yeah, yeah Dennis Horak, th- thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it every time you join us. That's former ambassador. Thank you, David. Horak. Thank you, sir. U.S. President Joe Biden is expected to make the case for wartime aid to Israel in an address from the Oval Office tonight. But any new assistance must be approved by Congress, and right now... Well, that House of Representatives is frozen without a speaker. The CBC's Katie Simpson joins us now from Washington. So, Katie, let's start with the president. What are we expecting to hear from Joe Biden tonight? Well, Joe Biden is going to try to make the case to the American people why it is in their best interest to support a massive spending package for four key things. One, support and military aid for Israel as well as Ukraine, Um, additional money for Taiwan to help strengthen their security, and then money to help make the southern U.S. border more secure. That is what we're expecting Joe Biden to lay out his plan tonight and really uh, make the case for why uh, making sure that there is global stability is for the best interest of everyday Americans. It's a $100 billion spending package that we're hearing about at this point. Um, It's quite significant. And so uh, Joe Biden is really going to uh, try to make his case to Americans with a rare Oval Office address. Now, Biden had previously planned to make this kind of address about Ukraine and ongoing U.S. support for the war in Ukraine for uh, to ensure that the United States continues to get aid and military supplies into Ukraine uh, because there has been a minority, but a very vocal minority of lawmakers who don't want to see any more funding going there and to address those concerns and address concerns of Americans who um, have voiced support for saying they'd rather spend that money, that taxpayer money on domestic challenges, deal with, dealing with different things at home, uh, really trying to make that case about why in this moment, how how the United States decides to act could have a significant influence on how these volatile global conflicts are, are evolve. Okay, so many of those lawmakers who are skeptical about Ukraine are also key players in what's happening in the House of Representatives right now. So where are we on that, Katie? Are we any closer to, to getting a speaker? That, no? All right. I, I, <laughs> it is. It is. Next. No, um, it is. It is. Um, it is another wild day up on Capitol Hill. When it started, Jim Jordan was expected to go to the floor again, have another vote. It would be his third. And it, the speculation was he was going to lose even more support. He held a first vote and 20 Republicans refused to back 
him. Second vote, 22 Republicans refused to back him. The speculation was he'd lose uh, a total of 30 votes this oh. go-round. Um, but uh, instead, uh, he huddled with his inner circle and then went to a Republican meeting with all the lawmakers and said, listen, why don't we give the acting speaker some temporary powers? Uh, he can act as speaker until January. That way we can get the House back open. We can pass some bills. And that idea did not go over, <laughs> over very well uh, behind closed doors. This was a heated meeting that went on for three hours. Um, there are reports that Kevin McCarthy yelled at Matt Gates. Um, Matt Gates described it as very animated. Uh, there are reports that one lawmaker lunged at Matt Gates as well. Matt Gates being the Florida Republican who brought forward the motion to boot Kevin McCarthy and sort of really kicked off this this. Um, uh, dumpster fire of a display <laughs> of the U.S. Capitol, because that's kind of where it is. It's been 16 yep. days. Uh, there's no one who's in charge up there, and this means that the government can't do the business. That means the House can't do the business it's supposed to do. These people were sent to Washington on behalf of their constituents to do the business of government, government, and it's not happening. And because of this infighting within the Republican Party, no one can get a majority of the, no one can get 217 votes, uh, so they can't get this speaker. And so um, when that idea was shot down, Jim Jordan came out and said, OK, you know what? I'm going to go back to those 22 lawmakers that don't want to give me their support. And uh, he's ready to, to try and win them over. But he just stormed out of one of those meetings. So there could be another there could be another floor vote tonight. Uh, there had been suggestions there would be one. But um, by the time from the time this conversation started to the time it ends, um, we could have a change. I don't yeah, know. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I don't know. I, I, I hear you. But, you know, Katie, as we've been talking about this all week, you've driven home the point that why Jim Jordan is such a non-starter for Democrats in particular is his role in uh, the election denial controversy in the United mm. States. There was a big development on that issue today involving another key election denier and potentially some real legal problems here that could affect Donald Trump. Just walk us through what happened there. Yeah, so Canadians may have heard the phrase, release the Kraken. That is the phrase of Sidney Powell. She was a member of Donald Trump's inner circle, a lawyer who said she was going to unleash vast troves of evidence of widespread voter fraud stealing the election from Donald Trump and giving it to Joe Biden. That was absolutely not true. Um, uh, it, it just wasn't true. And there was no evidence to back it up. And so today in a court in Georgia, she entered a guilty plea uh, on a number of charges related to one specific aspect of the election interference uh, case in Georgia. Um, and so the part of the agreement is she is going to cooperate with prosecutors. Now, there is a question. I've seen a number of different um, prosecutors and legal experts sort of debate on how uh, far ranging that could be and, and what aspects of this criminal investigation or, and these charges she might be able to speak to. I've seen different opinions on that. Uh, but for someone who is so close to Donald Trump from the period of the election to January 6th and even after the efforts to overturn the election results, um, uh, if I'm Donald Trump's legal team, yeah. um, it, it might be deeply, deeply concerning, because if she's agreeing to testify for prosecutors and cooperate, you know, what does she know that Donald Trump doesn't want them to know? Yeah. When people lower down the food chain, start cutting deals, it's usually a, a bad sign for the people at the top. Uh, CBC's Katie Simpson in Washington. Thank you so much. Thanks. Hezbollah is, of course, backed by Iran, and it is one of the most powerful paramilitary forces in the Middle East, if not the world. It operates in southern Lebanon and is continuing to engage in minor exchanges with the Israel Defense Forces. But so far in this current conflict, it is showing relative restraint. 
Matthew Levitt is a counterterrorism and intelligence expert at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. In 2008 to 2009, he served as a U.S. State Department counterterrorism advisor to the Special Envoy for Middle East Regional Security. And he joins us now to discuss the potential of Hezbollah's role in this war. Uh, so, so, Matthew, we're seeing more fire being exchanged by Israel and Hezbollah. The Israeli military released footage showing strikes on what it says are Hezbollah targets in southern Lebanon. What's your assessment of the current situation on that border? My assessment is that we are at a precipice of potentially very, very dangerous miscalculation. For some time now, Hezbollah has been trying to find ways to engage Israel militarily, such that Israel wouldn't retaliate in full scale, which Hezbollah has not wanted. They infiltrated a terrorist into Israel several months ago. They've been launching drone, a drone at uh, the offshore gas field and other things. In the context of the Hamas war, Hezbollah has felt some pressure to get involved, and they've done things both themselves, firing anti-tank guided missiles into Israeli communities, allowing Hamas operatives in Lebanon to shoot rockets or trying to approach the fence themselves. But now some Hezbollah operatives have been killed in Israeli retaliation, and things are getting very, very high. And it's not just in Lebanon. Other Iranian Shia militias are doing the same. A ship in the, in, in the Red Sea just uh, shot down a rocket fired north by the Houthis. It's unclear if that was being fired at southern Israel. An American contractor was killed today in, uh, in rocket firing by Iraqi Shia militias at U.S. bases. There's a series of places where Iran and proxies are heating things up. And the potential for Hezbollah to either miscalculate, to hit something by mistake, or to feel, I just need to do this because otherwise Hamas is going to be destroyed. There's too many ways this can go south. Uh, overshadowing all of this or influencing all of this, I should say, is this deadly explosion at the hospital in Gaza. Israel says they didn't do it. The U.S. says Israel did not do it. The Arab world does not seem to believe it. So how is that influencing Hezbollah decision making right now? This is a crucial issue. The U.S., the United Kingdom, Israel have all come forward saying this was definitively a misfired Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket, which is a, a double war crime, firing rockets at Israeli civilian communities, using Palestinians as human shields, and then misfiring. What this has done, however, is created tension throughout the region, where throughout the region, people believe what they want to believe. They believe the incendiary rhetoric coming from Iran, from Hezbollah leaders and others. And there is now tremendous grassroots swelling anger that Hezbollah is going to feel that not only as support, but maybe even as some pressure to act and to do more against Israel. Okay, so if they do do more, compared to Hamas, this is a much more formidable fighting force, said to have more than 100,000 fighters, perhaps, and hundreds of millions of dollars in weapons and funding from Iran annually. If Hezbollah does enter this conflict, how does that change things uh, on the war front? So, you know, Hamas is the baby brother. Hezbollah is the big threat with 150 to 200,000 rockets. Um, it could do a tremendous amount of damage. My assessment still is that if Hezbollah gets involved more, it's going to try and do it in such a way as to still stay short of full-scale warfare. It understands that while Hamas had the uh, benefit of surprise, uh, Hezbollah will not have the element of surprise. It understands that the Israelis have been prepping for the next war with Hezbollah since 2006, and they understand that they're much better prepared this time. And they also see 
two U.S. aircraft carrier groups in the Eastern Med. The president has made it clear he does not want those to necessarily have to engage. But if anything happens and there's a sense that Israel is facing any type of existential threat, they are there and they are there to be called upon. And the question is, does Iran, does Hezbollah want to risk opening this up into a wider regional war and have to face the combined firepower of Israel and the United States, and potentially, if it gets really bad, others as well. Israel has had visits from the leaders of France, the leaders of the UK, all of whom have doubled down on Israel's right to defend itself, reminding the world that this is a Hamas war initiated by Hamas with a cross-border raid, killing some 1,400 Israelis, kidnapping 200-something people, including foreigners from almost 40 countries. Uh, this is something that Iran and its proxies have brought on the region. And the question is, how far do they want to take it? Do they understand, as they should, that Israel and its allies are willing to fight back? Do you think that's enough of a deterrent? Uh, we saw the reaction to President Biden's visit to the region and his use of the word the other team and, and the kind of the outrage that has caused. So there is a domestic political sentiment in every country in that region that has been affected by this. Is the, is the fleet presence, is the president's uh, words to stay out of it, do you think that's enough of a deterrent uh, at this point based on the anger and rage that we're seeing? You have to put these in two boxes. One is the deterrent against the militants who might actually start doing things. The other is the rage in the street and what type of violent protests or other things they might do. Violent protests of the type we saw tonight of the uh, horrific and tragic Islamic Jihad uh, failed missile strike that hit the hospital. Uh, those can be very, very dangerous, but those are a much lesser issue than a full-scale war with thousands upon thousands of rockets. That's a decision that, or that, that, that militant groups and countries are going to make. I do think they understand the deterrent. I don't know that that would be enough. I do hear other voices in the region. Prince Turki al-Faisal in Saudi Arabia, who does not have a formal position, but once had the Saudi intelligence agency, was the ambassador to the United States, the ambassador to the UK, still a very prominent figure. He issued a commendation condemning Hamas for putting Israeli-Saudi normalization um, uh, off kilter and blamed Qatar for funding Hamas. And not a word about Israel, but both negative against Hamas. Uh, I, I think there is a desire by, by the moderate states in the region to try and, and tone this down. Uh, they're going to do it slowly and carefully because they don't want the anger on the street to be directed at them. Uh, but I think if Hezbollah initiates something new, no one, least of all the Lebanese, are going to be happy about being dragged into it. Right. And Hezbollah, should, should they do this? You mentioned rockets. I mean, Hamas has rockets, but the ones Hezbollah has uh, better range better accuracy, just a, a higher tech weapon. So with all the uncertainty and the moving parts in the region, uh, uh, Matthew, what, what are you looking at for next to see potentially where this may go? The issue with Hezbollah is not just the sophistication of some of their rockets. The vast majority are, are not kind of super smart mm -hmm. rockets, but they have at least several hundred that are. There's also the numbers and the ability with numbers to overwhelm even the Israeli or tier missile defense system. So I'm watching very, very carefully, not only what is actually happening along the border, but what people are saying. We have not yet heard big speech from Hassan Nasrallah. He can't make a speech that doesn't either say escalate or de-escalate. I am watching what people are saying on social media and elsewhere. I'm concerned about 
Iran and Hezbollah choosing not to do something directly, but trying to uh, uh, fan the flames and convince people to go carry out and carry acts of violence on their own. And that could be in the region, that could be elsewhere. Finally, you're watching to see how the Israelis are deployed. They are deployed big in the north, uh, not only in the south. Uh, they are committed for this. Uh, and as one senior Israeli put it to me, at the end of the day, we have no choice. We can't afford to lose. Right. And, and just uh, as a point of clarification for people who don't know this issue as well as you, Hassan Nasrallah is the secretary general of Hezbollah. So when he That's speaks, right. that, will be a, that will be a very important thing. What he says publicly will, will tell us a lot. I think so. All right. Matthew Levitt with the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, as always. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.